0: Welcome back to Inside the Hive. This is Emily Jane Fox, and I'm here with a very, very special guest. I'm here with Professor Andy Tucker, a historian and journalist who has taught at Columbia Journalism School, my former alma mater. Since 1998, she has been writing on the evolution of conventions of truth telling for decades, and she is the author of a new book that is just absolutely fantastic. I read it last night. The book is called Not Exactly Lying Fake News and Fake Journalism in American History. Professor, welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Your book feels like it could not be more timely. This is the topic that that Joe and I talk about all the time on this podcast. It is the topic of any smart person having any <laughs> kind of conversation in the world right now. But you are kind of the original when we're talking about fake news and fake journalism. You were writing about it and studying it long before... Anyone who ever had an inkling in their eye about Trump being president and Fox News being Fox News ever thought about anything that they're doing right now? So, how and why did you start looking and studying fake news and fake journalism in American history?
1: You're right. I did begin this a long time ago. I I started when I was writing my dissertation. Mm. I was interested in figuring out how people talk about what is true and how people determine the language that persuades other people that things are true journalism was obviously a, a an arena to to consider that but it also became really clear really fast that you can't talk about conventions for telling the truth without also understanding the reasons and the conventions and the and the responses about what's false so they they go together mm-hmm. and the more i studied journalism over the years the more the more often I would see it's filled with hoaxes, it's filled with humbugs, it's filled with mistakes, it's filled with deceptions. It's also filled with some really great stuff, and they fight, they fight. And how truth wins out has always been an interest, and also how truth doesn't always win out has mm. been a sideline.
0: Well, what is the difference? Is it, is it a matter of timing? Is it a matter of circumstance, specific circumstance prevailing? What are the times when truth has prevailed? And what are the times when they haven't? Like, what is the difference that is happening? What's the alchemy that is being struck at that point?
1: Mm, alchemy. That's an interesting word. So much of it depends on the political and social and cultural atmosphere of the mm. time. It's really, really hard to tell straightforward, difficult truths in times of war, for instance. And we're seeing that with Ukraine, certainly. Mm. There's a lot of, of misinformation for propaganda purposes. There's also a lot of pressure to tell the good news on the right side. There was a. The example of the fighter ace, the Ukrainian fighter ace, who was supposedly shooting down Russian pilots right and left. And this was this took over social media. And it turned out that it was actually um, fabricated from a video game, the footage Mm. that was used to tell this story, because it's so tempting to want to tell good news in a time of crisis. That's sure. always that's always the era of greatest tension. Technologies, though, new technologies come along, and the first thing people think is, wow, this is really great. This is going to change everything. How are we going to use this? And then the next thing that comes along is people think, how do we tell what's true in this new thing that doesn't have any rules anymore yet? So those are the kind of inflection points that really need attention when we're thinking about truth and falsehood.
0: Well, what's, what's interesting in, in hearing you say this and then in, in reading your book, it feels like the times when people are both most susceptible to believing things that are maybe not entirely true and, and also when people are pushing things that are not mm-hmm. entirely true are in times of great strife and, in, and when there's something to gain by pushing a specific side. Does that ring true to you?
1: Yes. Okay. Yes. Something to gain. And and often what that is, is political power. And I, that's that's a lot of what we're seeing nowadays with the hyper-partisanship. There have been other eras of hyper-partisanship before where fake news and fake journalism have flourished, like the, the Clinton years mm. with the whole Arkansas project of, 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 of a billionaire funding a, a, a right-wing magazine to dig up dirt on the Clintons, most of which was, was aspirational or, or <laughs> never proven. Mm. But it both feeds and is fed by these moments of intense political infighting and grappling for power.
0: You just struck on something. Uh, you you said both fake news and fake journalism, and I'm wondering if you could explain the distinction between the two of those.
1: Yeah, that's a distinction that I make in the book. Fake news. Um, we all know we we hear fake news. It's become just ubiquitous in the the public discourse. Everything you don't like is called fake news how i define fake news is is false information whether f- for whatever purpose but that it might come to us from social media or popular culture it 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 often operates outside the information system of journalism what i'm calling fake news is i think more dangerous it's the the appropriation of the of the guise of Professionalized journalism based on understood standards—the appropriation of that guise to push stuff that is deceptive, often that's opinionated or that is partisan or 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 advocacy of some sort—but it uses the language of objectivity and professional verification. Um, it calls itself, for instance, fair and balanced, as mm. as Fox News used to do.
0: That seems to that that saying seems to ring a bell.
1: Yeah, exactly, and and if you look at a lot of the very um, clearly partisan advocacy organizations in the public sphere now, you look at Fox News, you look at Project Veritas, you look at Breitbart, you look at Daily Caller, and most of them have statements that say we are accurate, we are verified. We, you know, if you if we make mistakes, let us know. We'll publish corrections. They hide behind that language in order to present stuff that sounds like and feels like journalism to people who want to believe it. But it is, it is in fact, um, fake news.
0: These terms, and uh, defining them and separating the two is so useful because obviously they get so lumped together. And I, I would say there's rarely a day in anyone who's listening to this lives where one of the two of those terms don't come up. But this is obviously not the... First period where fake news and fake journalism has ex- have existed. When in the U.S. did these terms sort of enter our lexicon? Whether they were named or they were just uh, ideas that people were aware of.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, an understanding of the possibility of fake news has been around as long as as there has been journalism in America. Mm-hmm. The very first newspaper in the North Amer- in the English North American colonies, Public Occurrences, comes out in 1690 published by somebody who comes over from London, a guy named Ben Harris, who sets up as a journalist and needs to persuade people. No one has ever seen a hometown journalist before oh in, in the colonies. So he's there. He's got to persuade people, you know, look at me. I'm Trust me. I'm telling you the <laughs> truth. So he comes out with his newspaper. He says, I'm going to look. If, if anybody gives me false reports, I'm going to expose them. I'm going to use only the best sources. I mean, he sounds like a responsible professional journalist. And then he publishes a piece, a little piece that says that King Louis Fourteenth of France is sleeping with his daughter-in-law which he was not because he didn't have a daughter-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> but it seemed to me that Ben Harris, the, the publisher of this newspaper, was a committed Protestant. Louis Fourteenth was a Catholic who was persecuting Protestants in France. Mm. I think that Ben Harris figured this Little tidbit of gossip. I don't care if it's true or not. It says something bad about this awful guy who's persecuting Protestants, and it says something bad about that. That people will believe because he's a papist, he's a king. He 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 was known to have a, a licentious life. They'll believe it. Doesn't matter. It's close enough. It's close enough. Yeah. So there's been that from the beginning. But there was a real debate using the word faking that I found really interesting. In the 1880s, 1890s, some journalists, up until then, there were really no rules for journalism. There was no conventions. There was no codes of ethics. People, people had an idea that you should tell the truth. But newspapers also did things like uh, they published tall tales and hoaxes and humbugs. And, and, and it was up to the reader to figure it out. Or they didn't really know what was true, so they would use a headline, a standard headline over a piece that was sort of unverifiable. They would say, important if true, Mm. which of course meant that, you know, if it was not true, it was trivial. By around the late 19th century a lot of them were talking about faking as something they loved to do because it was it made their audiences their readers happy. Mm. If you look at trade there are new trade journals coming out in the 1880s and one of them says faking is not exactly lying it's embellishing a story it's giving it a little bit of snap and sparkle it won't hurt anybody people will like it and and reporters enjoyed doing that it gave them a little creativity. So the word is being used in, in this time. And this is when what I call real journalism arises in part as a reaction against those fakers. Mm. Real journalism, one of the earliest practitioners uh, or, the, or who attempted to set standards was Adolf Oakes with his New York Times, which he bought in 1896. There's an idea that journalism is not serving the public good, that It's not trustworthy that the faking is is giving it a bad name, that the yellow press is way too sensational. So Mm -hmm. some newspapers start to try to set standards and to identify themselves as the journalists who do not fake. Uh, were, Were these newspapers that did set standards
0: more or less successful financially?
1: Oh, that's a really good question. The, the the most successful newspapers are always the ones that push the boundaries and 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 are a little sensational and a yes. little deceptive and a little fake. Yes. Yeah, the Hearst and Pulitzer yellow press of the eighteen nineties always outsold the New York Times by a lot. Mm. In the 1920s, the tabloids, the Daily News, reached a million. The first newspaper in America to reach a million circulation. So, yeah, people always like that. It's it's entertaining. It's interesting. It doesn't take a lot of time out of your life. It doesn't take eat your attention. Yeah.
0: Well, it just goes to show you that this tension between the business side of journalism and the capital J side of of journalism has existed long before the the period <laughs> of time that we are currently in. And, and hearing you talk about that era gives me shivers up my spine, and I think it may be a little bit of PTSD for what it has been like to be a journalist over the last six years. And I think uh, it's both been the heyday of being a journalist and I think a really terrible period to be a journalist because you are constantly on the defense about the work that you do because for... 50% of the country, you are told that you are making it up, that it is fake news, that you are liberal media with an agenda. And I think some of that is is true for some journalists and for many, many, many journalists, for every colleague that I've ever worked with. We try really hard. We're trying harder than ever to get it right and to be down the middle. And I, I think hearing you talk about the roots of that really just... Set off every alarm bell in my brain of everything that I've been fighting against. Yeah,
1: no, I, 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 hear what you're saying, and that's that's the real danger of fake journalism is that it shadows real journalism. The ones who use the who who use the language and the guise of real journalism and and, and betray it um, make it all the harder for real journalists to do their really important, essential work.
0: off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. When I was at journalism school, it was 2011, 2012, and uh, my classmates and I, I think this was slightly post-recession, but still sort of felt recession-y, and the news business was changing so much. It was really shifting over for, for... for the first time, it felt like print was having a very, very tough time, and digital was everything, but it still hadn't figured out how to be profitable in any way, shape, or form. So it was very, very difficult time to get a job in journalism.
1: Yeah. Very.
0: That. And so basically our whole year of the program was spent... Talking about that, but I would imagine now for students who are at the journalism school, so much of the focus must be on exactly what you're talking about. I think that the problem of journalism today is fake news and fake journalism and misinformation. Is that
1: right? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of interest in misinformation, disinformation. A lot of anxiety. A lot of of um, tension. Yeah, and. It's a really hard world out there for people who want to do good work in journalism. It's the the kind of places where when I started teaching at the J School in 1998, people would graduate and they would go work on, you know, metro newspapers. That just doesn't happen. It's harder and harder to find the sort of place that lets you do the really important work.
0: Well, that I think is entirely true. And because there are Aren't very many places where you can do the very important work anymore. I also think for readers, it's a really tough time to figure out how you get news down the middle. I hear all the time from very, very smart people, I don't know where to get my news right now. And I think part of that is because there are a few places to get your news, and also because even the good places to get your news have been demonized. How in a historical context, I would imagine this is not the first time where people have high feelings of distrust in the media. Are there other times that you can think of where this has played out? And I'm, I'm curious if we can take a lesson for those times about how to get out of them.
1: Yeah, I've been looking for lessons. I've been really, <laughs> really looking for lessons. It's really hard. There are times, um, there have been some times when everything just spirals up and ratchets up to such a fever pitch that a pin comes along and sticks and it and it all kind of blows out. I'm thinking of the yellow press in the Spanish-American War in 1898, when Pulitzer and Hearst just egged each other on and, 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 and the spiral of sensationalism just kept ratcheting up and up and up because if one found a story, the other had to find a bigger story and the other had to find a, a, a more sensational story. And then at one point, Hearst's paper... Published a little poem, a stupid little poem saying something about it would be not so terrible if the president was assassinated. And less than a year later, the president was. Mm. McKinley was assassinated. And then nobody, nobody said that it was Hearst who had caused the assassination. The assassin didn't even read English. But the point was that it made everybody stop and take a deep breath and go, oh this is wrong this is bad we got to stop and and i one of my one of my theories is that this is why joseph pulitzer then established the columbia journalism school because oh, wow. he was so embarrassed at the at the the excesses he had countenanced in the in the circulation battle and when it when everybody stepped back and took a breath it became very clear so sometimes sometimes it takes a kind of a crisis like that i hate though to to wait around for a big enough crisis to help you know, move journalism along.
0: Well, also, kind of haven't we been living in in the biggest crisis of this for the last (laughs) five years?
1: Yes, and sometimes I think if this isn't a big enough crisis to stop it, you know, I I can't imagine what is.
0: God, I don't want to wait around to find out what's worse than what's been happening over the last stretch of time. I I hate to even bring it up, but we kind of got there. I feel like we have to talk about Donald Trump's role in this. Obviously, in... The election of twenty sixteen and then twenty twenty when he was president, but it it dates back way further than that. You write about this in your book to his role in the birther movement in in President Obama's term. So uh,
1: we have to address him and and
0: who he is in the history of fake news and fake journalism
1: yeah, he is he is a prime mover, and it it you know i I am just as baffled as as so many people I know to explain this phenomenon of a man who can be so blatantly pugnaciously mendacious and have it work, have it accepted. He's speaking to people, to voters, to Americans who have a vision of what they believe the country to be, and they have not seen that vision reflected elsewhere. In, in many ways, it's an inaccurate or warped or distorted vision, which is why it's not reflected elsewhere. But along comes Trump and, and makes them feel validated. And it's really hard to tell people that something they desperately want to believe is not true. Mm. And he's been very good at telling people the things they desperately want to believe are true, mm. better than anyone else I've, I've seen in, in my historical research.
0: Well, part of that, is that he is a very effective communicator in the way that he communicates, whether we like what he's communicating or not. Yeah. Uh, And then you also have a two-pronged thing that is helping him. You have an institution like Fox News and you have social media.
1: And I'm wondering
0: if you can talk to me about both of those two entities and where they fit in historically. I know that these are in many ways similar and in many ways different than the kinds of uh, platforms that people had in in other times that sort of
1: mirror where we are today. Yeah. Now, I think that, that Trump has certainly been empowered and enabled by um, more traditional media like Fox News. Um, I, I say it more traditional because it is a cable television rather than social media, but also social media has had an enormous influence and Trump has been very good at using it, at manipulating it. This intimate relationship between a political figure and journalistic organizations is, well, I won't say unprecedented, nothing is really unprecedented, but it is, it is a much, much stronger and more powerful connection than I've seen in the past. There have been newspapers, that that have been very powerfully on the side of 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 a political figure. I think of the Chicago Tribune in in the 1930s and 40s when it hated Franklin Roosevelt, hated him passionately, um, and that was a powerful newspaper. Uh, but I don't think it had the kind of reach and influence that Fox News, for instance, has, and social media are just it. It's, it's difficult to categorize or characterize because I don't think we have seen anything like the ubiquity, the speed, the, the cheapness of it. It is so easy. It used to be if you wanted to, to really broadcast your ideas, you needed some kind of platform that cost you money. <laughs> you can now just you know, buy a phone. And if you've got a phone, you, you, can, you can tell millions of people anything you want. You could go That's to the library
0: no. and use it. You don't even have to spend a dollar. There's no <laughs> barrier terrible. to entry.
1: That's true, that's true and that is something that is new and, and very frightening and raises all sorts of questions that that lag way behind the effects. The questions are, for instance, many people who who have not studied journalism who don't know a lot about how journalism works they say, well why can't you just regulate it? Why can't you just forbid it? Why can't you just you know stop these from from publishing? It's really difficult to explain that that you know the legal, traditions of the First Amendment and freedom of the speech, freedom of speech, all of this, all of this is in play here. People want to say, well, you know, cut it down. If it's wrong, cut it down. And, and it's never been really unconstitutional to say things that are wrong.
0: Sure. Well, then I'm, in that vein, I'm wondering what you think of Twitter's decision to de-platform President Trump.
1: Really fascinating, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, yeah. I think it was a private company making a decision that I it was a very brave decision mm-hmm. uh, it was a very important decision and I think it has certainly diminished Trump's voice among his followers although he's now finding other ways he's you know he's setting up his new social network doesn't seem to be doing that well it, yes. it was it was a a moment when he had the power and the and the voice at the same time he's kind of lost that. I don't think that I
0: really understood how powerful Twitter was until he was deplatformed because yeah. you instantly cut off oxygen to him. You had no way to hear from him directly. It not not only did you not hear from him directly, you kind of didn't hear from him indirectly because his tweets every time he sent one was covered. It was on the front page of newspapers. It was the top story on every cable news network. And so he knew that the the platform was going to set things off and get coverage and whatever he said was going to be covered for days on end and without that he was gone he was missing yeah. it. it really just shows you the power of these platforms and how that they became the place where news and uh, news agendas were set
1: yeah yeah and there have been powerful platforms in the past but nothing like this nothing nothing with this kind of 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 immediate reach and it also it raised a lot of questions for journalists when he was on Twitter, when he was using Twitter so powerfully, as you said, do you really have to put it on the front page of the newspaper every time? Right. Do you do you cover it all the time like that? Do you give him that much amplification of the oxygen he already has? And that's a, that was a serious debate that I uh, that journalists would you know flying to screaming matches about about how to handle that kind of that kind of news.
0: I was sometimes in those screaming matches, so I, <laughs> I understand. One thing that I, I will give credit to social media for is the fact that if you see something on Fox News, if you see something in a, uh, in another news outlet that you want to call out, you now have the ability to, to do so now. And, and until social media was prevalent, you couldn't really do anything about the news that was false or fake journalism. You, you had no recourse for calling out the powers that be. Is that Right.
1: Yeah, but well, the less recourse—you could always write a letter to the editor, and maybe you would be one of the, you know, several thousand who didn't, who would be picked sure. out of the several thousand and be published. But I don't know. Um, part of the problem with social media is it's so easy to stay in your own mm. bubble and not to see. It's very easy not to see how other organizations are going to call out news that I agree with and and challenge that. It's very easy to find confirmation of what I want to believe, and I really have to work hard if I'm going to challenge myself to look at stuff I, I I'm I'm questioning.
0: We're talking a lot about journalism and about fake journalism, but I want to just touch on this moment in fake news that we're witnessing. Uh, I, I think primarily of all the information around vaccines and vaccination right now, and of course uh, that's not new to COVID disinformation, misinformation around anti-vax sentiment has been around for a long time, but I think because for the first time we're having mass vaccination, you're really seeing it in the masses. Mm-hmm. How does something like this spread and gain traction put this in a little bit of historical context?
1: Yeah. Well, as you say, there have there have been controversies over vaccines before in one of the first newspaper battles in 17, oh, I forgot Seventeen twenty-one, something like that. Two newspapers took opposite sides about whether smallpox vaccination oh, wow. is good, and they and they used language like "this is false," "you're lying," "you're you're you're telling you're telling untruths about about what the vaccines do." So it's always been a very fraught issue. People who look at it as only a public health issue or only a medical issue are really losing sight of the emotion that drives this so it's like politics it is as emotionally fraught as politics and it gets people as anxious and as angry and as divided as politics can especially since it is so explicitly now linked to partisan politics that for some people refusing vaccines is a statement on behalf of trump or others on the on the right so it it's so similar to the way that political partisanship has Taken over mm. the social media discourse.
0: It's so fascinating to to hear you talk about the roots of it, and I hate to ask for a prescription for how to go forward because <laughs> I know that there's not an okay. answer. But I also know that you are the most studied, wise person on the topic. <laughs> so I'll ask you a, a series of questions about how we move forward. I won't mm-hmm. ask you the the big, overarching thirty thousand foot question. Uh, okay I get asked a lot and I have one conversation in my head that for now literally years has stuck out to me a very dear friend's mother was trying to decide whether or not she wanted to vote for President Trump or or mm-hmm. now President Biden and she didn't know where to get her news from because she didn't trust the New York Times or people like the New- papers like the New York Times. She didn't trust Fox News and she felt helpless. She felt at a loss. She felt like there was nowhere for her to turn. And I do not think she is alone in that, both uh, in people who really don't understand the media landscape and people who really do understand the media landscape. I think everyone is sort of at a, a frustrating point with the state of journalism. So what do you tell people who are frustrated, who don't know where to turn, who don't know where to look? How do we get back to an era of both trusting news and of, of telling news in a way that seems more like calling balls and strikes?
1: Oh, that is the hardest question in the world. Um, but But... Absolutely critical for the the future of mm-hmm. public life and democracy. um I mean, there there are the things, the standard things you tell people about about how to evaluate the credibility of a news source, people who ask how to how do I know whether to trust it? I give them a mm-hmm. checklist of things to look for. Is this a news organization that has editors who will, Scrutinize or supervise the the final copy. Is this a news organization that, if it makes a mistake, will acknowledge it and publish a correction? Mm. Is it a news organization that um, is independent or is has has some kind of financial relationship that that you should know about? I mean, those are all standard things. It it doesn't it doesn't answer the existential sure. question of how do I trust this again? And you know. This is this is sort of where I'm tempted to say I'm a historian. <laughs> I, I don't know how to solve current problems. I just look at them. Um, but I think that one one aspect that troubles me a lot is, for many good reasons, the whole idea, the professional journalistic ideal of objectivity, has come under strong challenge in the mainstream press. Um, for good reasons, as I say, there is an understanding that it often is misapplied. There's a misunderstanding about what, what objectivity really means, which in its original form in the 1920s simply meant scrutinizing facts like a scientist, testing your assumptions, um, stepping back, rigorously verifying. It did not require that you say on the one hand, on the other hand, and go mm. home. It did not require that you hide all emotions or deny you had emotions. It meant that you recognized them and tested your information so that you would you would feel comfortable and your readers would feel comfortable that that they had all the information they needed, even if it was information that the reporter, him or herself, didn't necessarily believe.
0: Well, I think that that's a really good point that you bring up because uh, we've been in, in such a hypersensitive time where it's always impossible for everyone to completely have no opinion about anything or no thought about anything that's happening in the world. I, I think about the the hearings that we're having for the new Supreme Court justice. And I heard her say yes. earlier this week in those insane hearings, uh, she, she was asked about her opinion on something. And she said, well, of course I have opinions. I'm a person. I have thoughts, but that's not how I perform my job. And I think that that was so, it rang so true to me as a a journalist too. You can't rid yourself of all human emotion and rational thought. And I think part of the problem over the last six years or part of the problem that I've been having over the last six years Mm. is that there's right and left and then there's right and wrong, right? And I think that when things got to a point where they were so blatantly wrong, having nothing to do with partisanship... It was my personal belief that you were allowed to call that out because there's some objectivity to being able to say something is wrong. I don't know if you agree with that.
1: Well, I do to a certain extent. Absolutely. There are it is it is silly to try to find, you know, somebody to balance out your your claim that climate change is dangerous. That that's completely unnecessary. The,
0: the children in cages. It, you're allowed to say this is yeah. this is not right.
1: Yeah, yeah. There are certain things that that that, that seem self-evidently factual. What's the, my concern is is that many of the mainstream media are backing off from the claim that they can report objectively because there are there are valid questions about or what, what does neutral mean? Who whose standpoint is neutral? Um, but the more that the mainstream media are acknowledging and flaunting sometimes their own subjectivity, as, as long as they are claiming the right to make judgments, as, you know, to, to be transparent about their feelings, that's fine. That is, that is persuasive. On the other hand, you've got the empire of right-wing media saying, we're not biased. We're, we're completely objective. We're verifying everything. So you've got on the one hand, the people who are saying we have the truth. And on the other side, you have the people who are doing the hard work of journalism, but they're saying, well, this is, the, we have to be transparent. This is, this is coming out of this certain place.
0: you're you're talking about the way that Republicans and Democrats communicate basically right now. <laughs> well, and that's why yes, Republicans are always so successful so because they they yeah. just are where they are, they don't apologize for it and they are mm-hmm. more comfortable being less truthful and Democrats apologize for who they are all the time.
1: And 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 mainstream journalists apologize for having yes. feelings. And that, you know, that that undermines and diminishes the, the, the factual evidence they have collected. And one likes to think that they have subjected, you know, committed to the process of verification and understanding. I'm not so sure that ditching objectivity or the, the language of objectivity for mainstream, the mainstream media is, is really going to help.
0: Oh, well, this is... <laughs> entirely fascinating. And this conversation is why I encourage everyone to pick up your book. It is a really fascinating, rich, historical understanding of where we are today. I feel like I gained so much wisdom and my, my understanding of the situation that I have been thinking about and talking about for the last six years at nauseum is so much richer because of you. And I'm so grateful for you writing it and for you stopping by here today you were just a true wealth and fountain of wisdom and I'm, I'm so grateful for it.
1: Oh, thank you. And this has been a great conversation. I, I, I love talking about this. I feel much more interesting now that I've written this <laughs> book because people are so interested in the topic. But thank you for a great conversation.
0: Thank you to our guest, Andy Tucker and of course, my co-host, Joe Hagan, who's off this week. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13, and of course, our great producer, Brett Fuchs. And of course, I also want to thank our sponsors. Please support them any way you would support this podcast. We'll see you right here next week.